Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very delicious weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The culinary landscape is ever evolving and I want to feed your soul. So this conversation is all about the beauty of grilled fruit. Now grilling we know causes the natural sugars in the fruit to caramelize, but you also create this new smoky concoction that sort of reminds you of how decadent fruit can be. Now, I have a couple of suggestions when it comes to my best chef's tips. I find that you always want to brush whatever fruit it is that you're grilling with a little bit of olive oil, or if you're going the sweet root, I like melted butter, because the fat not only keeps the fruit from sticking to your grill grates, but it adds another element to the flavor profile. So for a sweet affair of gorgeous grilled desserts, let's experiment, shall we, with the season's best fruit on the grill. Now, mind you, when you're choosing fruit to grill, you want to go for ripe, but not soft or mushy uh, for really the ultimate texture. So grilled peaches, they're a classic, right? You simply have them. You brush them with olive oil if you're going savory. You grill them into their great grill marks and that smoky flavor is imparted. A little bit of char is important here. And then serve the grilled peaches, let's say alongside chicken or dice them into a salsa with pineapple and red onion. Now for dessert, I like to brush the cut side of ripe grilled peaches or even nectarines with a little bit of melted butter. My secret here is salted butter because the salt brings out the sweet in the fruit. And then once they're brushed with the melted salted butter, I dip them in brown sugar and I grill them until they're bubbly and golden, cut side down always. And then I'll turn them over and let them warm through for another minute or so on the grill. You can actually grill just about any stone fruit, plums, apricots. You might consider adding vanilla paste or dried spices. By the way, I love vanilla paste so much more than even vanilla extract. It has the uh, vanilla bean the little speckles of vanilla throughout, and it's a neutral gel that the vanilla bean is suspended in. And vanilla paste just packs so much more of a punch when it comes to flavor than vanilla extract ever could. And you can find vanilla paste in most of your high-end grocery store shelves or gourmet markets today. Uh, You can always uh, serve the grilled fruit with ice cream or whipped cream, or why not do even better and put a dollop of creme fraiche or mascarpone on top. And then with those grilled peaches that I mentioned, if you're choosing savory instead of sweet, I like to serve them as a first course and I'll crumble gorgonzola or gorgonzola dolce, an even creamier, sweeter version of gorgonzola cheese on top of the grilled peaches. Sometimes I'll lay out a piece or two of prosciutto, drizzle with reduced balsamic vinegar, Or um, I got my hands on some chocolate honey recently. Oh, it's so good. And yes, it's a beautiful compliment to the grilled peaches and the cheese. So you say you want more ideas? Oh, okay. How about combining a handful of your favorite berries with a sprinkling of sugar, a drop of almond extract, because a little goes a long way, putting it into a foil packet and putting it directly on the grill? 
because five minutes after your ribs are done, you take those fruity foil packets off the grill and you pour the bubbling, juicy, delicious mixture over grilled pound cake or a big bowl of ice cream or even alongside angel food cake. And you have this beautiful berry dessert that's totally and deliciously kissed by the barbecue. Now, if you're new to grilling fruit, pineapple is an excellent place to start. It has lots of surface area to get nice grill marks on it, and it never dries out, by the way, but the heat of the grill brings out the pineapple's sweetness. So for starters, cut a ripe pineapple in half or in quarters the long way so that the core is still intact, and um, place it on your barbecue until the grill marks appear. Then if you season it with black pepper, let's say a squeeze of lime juice and a drizzle of honey, it pairs brilliantly with pork chops. For the sweet version, I slice my pineapple into circles or rings, and you can take the core out if you like, although I happen to like to munch on it. And the best way to take it out um, is <laughs> with a... Uh, a pastry cutter, right? So, or, uh, you could also use the tip for a pastry bag. You know, when you go to make pretty decorations on top of a cake, the underside of the pastry bag, uh, the, the piece that fits in, right? Uh, it makes a perfect circle by the way, and it's great for a cutout. It's a pastry tip to be exact. Now I like to take for the sweeter version of grilled pineapple, cinnamon sugar, dust my pineapple, grill it till it's caramelized, and then serve it alongside gelato. Or I've been known to puree it and make grilled pineapple ice cream. Oh yes. You add the puree, or you could even just cut it into chunks to your custard base, and you have grilled pineapple goodness in the form of ice cream. Or how about a grilled pineapple colada? Oh yes, that brings me to grilled cocktails. So I love to grill fruit and then I blend it to make smoky, sensational cocktails and I call it from the grill to the glass. So grilled pineapple becomes a grilled colada. That'll keep you cool this summer. Grilled peaches become a grilled bellini and grilled grapefruit with the grilled lime or two, just the juice after it's been grilled becomes a grilled grapefruit mojito. Oh yes. And in fact, stay tuned because I have a grilled cocktail recipe coming up just at the end of the hour. For the non-alcoholic variety though, listen here. Have you ever made grilled lemonade? Oh, I love this recipe. So you take lemons and cut them in half and you dip the cut side in granulated sugar, and then you grill the lemons until they're nicely browned and warm throughout, which by the way, brings out their juice. Then you squeeze them into a bowl, uh, preferably over a strainer so that you cut out the pulp and any seeds that might fall. And I add more sugar uh, just so it's not too tart. You could use honey or agave if you like. Um, oftentimes, I'll throw a couple of rosemary sprigs on the grill while I'm grilling the lemons, and it tends to take on that herbaceous flavor just a little bit. That um, imparting of, of the herb is just beautiful. And then you add uh, cold water and ice, and you essentially have what is grilled lemonade. Transfer it to a pitcher, put it out on your picnic table, and watch everybody delight in a new summertime treat. And finally, no matter the season, if you slice open rather a banana, but lengthwise, um, and you leave it in its peel, 
and you grill it with the open side down for a couple of minutes, you have a grilled banana in its peel. But flip it over and add some chopped good quality dark chocolate or even Nutella into the seam of the banana or do brown sugar and cinnamon or do mini marshmallows with graham cracker crumbs and chocolate chips or do crumbled Nilla wafers with a drizzle of caramel all into the seam of that grilled banana still in its peel but cut open to expose the contents. Then close the grill and leave it there for a few minutes so the chocolate melts or the Nutella warms. And you have a killer dessert that you will want some more of. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I had to go there. I had no choice. (laughs) My best grilled fruit recipes, by the way, are at chefjamie.com for the taking. So please do check it out. And let me know what grilled cocktails grace your table. I love grilled fruit. I really do. Okay, it's time for food news. Here is some news you can use. Did you know that there is new evidence pointing to the health benefits of coffee, including a possible longevity boost for those of us that have a daily coffee habit? Oh, yes, that's me. The latest findings come from a study that was just published that included a half a million people ranging in age from 38 to 73. They found that people who drank two to three cups of coffee per day had a 12% lower risk of death compared to non-coffee drinkers. By the way, the association held up among drinkers of decaf as well, which leads you to wonder why coffee had such a bad rap. Well, this daily coffee habit is said to decrease the risk of stroke and type 2 diabetes. What is it about coffee that may be protective? It's not the caffeine. It's actually that they're studying the bean. And the coffee bean itself has phytochemicals that offer antioxidant-rich compounds. So it concluded that your daily coffee habit could definitely be a healthy part of your diet. So coffee's getting an image makeover, and I love it, because it wasn't too long ago coffee was still considered a vice. And so let's have another cup, shall we? I think there's a coffee break in order here. And don't touch your dial, please, because there is so much delicious conversation coming up. When we come back, Imogene Tendre is here, and we are highlighting the beauty and the deliciousness of Cuba I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's food and wine, and it's divine covering the global food scene. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Imogene Tendre is one of today's foremost experts on Cuban cuisine. And with our ongoing fascination with Cuba, her new cookbook is a springboard to stimulating conversation about their diverse and vibrant cuisine and unique culture. More a massive compendium than a cookbook, Cuba the Cookbook, as it's called, is written by Imogene and her co-author, Madeleine Vasquez Galvez. 
They explore the traditions and blend of cultural influences of Cuba through 350 home cooking recipes. Imogene moved to Cuba from her home in the U.S. eight years ago, and with a master's degree from the University of Havana for Cuban food culture, her insights into Cuban cuisine are eye-opening, and she's here to dish, and I am delighted. I welcome you to the show, Imogene. Thank you, Jamie. Thank yes, of course. Of My pleasure. I really do find the book fascinating. Uh, your introductions um, of a very a unique start to really better understand the food culture, and I wonder, what is it like to live and eat in Havana? Um, well, one thing I would um, say is that as soon as I moved there, I realized how much people talk about food all the time. Hmm. Now, Cubans are talkative people in general, so they talk about lots of things all the time. Um, but in how it related to food, I would be at a market and be trying to select produce, and, and somebody would say, oh, no, 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 there's a better selection at this other market. Or, you know, hmm. those mangoes are too ripe, but <laughs> the yuca is too fat. And, you know, I thought, do I look lost, or is it just that people are very talkative and help each other out. Um, nowadays, when uh, I have neighbors who are always telling me the best markets to go to or they'll come home from the farmer's market and, and report back which produce can be found at which market and, uh, and, and describe meals in great detail. You know, Cubans like to talk about food and, and will, will reminisce about a meal they had a month ago with each, each ingredient. And, and so I, I really hmm. noticed that uh, right after I moved there. Okay, that sounds extraordinarily joyous to me because I live my life that way in my own little concentric circles uh, and I don't dish that way at the grocery store about the mangoes per se, but you know, I will call my mom if I found really beautiful strawberries. And so that is a, a, a very food-centric, by definition, way to live. And I think it's interesting that it has propelled the Cubans to stay connected through food that way, seeing that there is a, a, such a rich heritage. So the Cuban cuisine reflects centuries of history. If you would talk about the influence of the, of yeah, the Cuban definitely. food. One thing that we mentioned in the introduction is that um, there was an indigenous population um, that had inhabited the island when the Spanish came. But they were not very numerous, and they were kind of dispersed throughout the island. So the Spanish basically eradicated this population. Um, and like many colonized lands, that meant that then the diet became um, much more similar to the colonizer than to the, uh, and distanced from the natural habitat. So there are some ingredients uh, still present in the Cuban diet from the indigenous population. But for the most part, uh, an example is, you know, there fishing techniques were displaced by um, livestock and pork and, and these other meats that were imported by the Spanish. Um, mm. That's one thing that people say, why isn't there more fish? And, and that's a very complicated question um, nowadays, but it does actually go back to, to this history of, of, um, of colonization. And, of course, the third major influence on Cuban cuisine came from the slaves brought from Africa. And you see that today in the use of yams and plantains and taro root and okra, all of those ingredients are very, very common on the Cuban table today. Um, but then there are other immigrant groups that continue to contribute over the years. So um, after the uh, revolution in Haiti, some French colonizers came to the eastern part of the island, mm -hmm. and 
they were actually very instrumental in, in um, developing coca and coffee plantations. Yes. Um, and then later, um, in 1847, the first Chinese came to Cuba as indentured servants. And they were instrumental in setting up some of the first um, small food stands. Some of them were called fondas, and some of them were developed into larger restaurants, but many of them stayed as just these little stands along, like, around the port area where sailors were coming in and out. And a lot of that food was kind of more fusion or more Spanish style. Um, a little bit were, were, um, were actually more traditional Chinese recipes, but they also um, incorporated certain um, ingredients like bok choy and scallions mm-hmm. and, um, and spinach in, in the recipes, and those, those all come from a Chinese influence. There's a Chinatown in Havana today. Um, How again, is it? A lot, of, it, a lot of it is very blended, so okay. you'll find very Cuban food. And yeah. you think, oh, this doesn't seem that Chinese, but there are a couple of restaurants that are more authentic still. Okay, so from a gourmet, from a, a, a gastronome perspective, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't speak to what you just alluded to, and that is the rationing system. Uh, there, there is conversation that's necessary to have about the way of life in Cuba. Uh, it seems joyful and joyous in so many ways as you speak about their love of food and a sense of community uh, and respect and appreciation for one another. You talked about your neighbors, but the rationing, uh, is it uh, is it challenging, do you find, for those to love food and to eat in Cuba uh, different than other places? Well, first of all, to clarify, the ration system, even at its inception, was never meant to fulfill the entire diet of, of anybody. Mm-hmm. It was basically just to establish some staples at an affordable, accessible price to everyone Good. and to start the steps to eradicate hunger. Right. Um, that said, uh, the, the ration system today is very different than what it was when it started. Um, now it's really just some basic ingredients. It's rice, beans, a little bit of chicken, um, some cooking oil, lots of sugar. Yes. Um, and then children get uh, milk up until seven years of age every month, um, probably forgetting a few things, the rice that I mentioned. Um, but that doesn't mean, so, so there are, all of the other ingredients are available um, at farmer's markets, kind of on the free market. So, you know, it's not that this is the only thing people can eat. It's that it's, those are the subsidized products that the government um, guarantees to the yes. population. That said, yes, there are problems with scarcity. Yes, there are problems with um, affordability and the fact that uh, there's not a lot of variety. Sometimes, like I mentioned, you know, sometimes my neighbors would come tell me, oh, this is where you can find that product, and that's because it can be a mission. It can be difficult to find what you're looking for. And, and so people help one another out, and mm-hmm. sometimes people complain. You, you might be at the market, and instead of saying, you know, oh, you should, you should get that product, they're saying, oh, no, this isn't. This isn't good quality, or this, I can, it's cheaper somewhere else. So, right. um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, challenges around food. Yes, and no matter the strife or the challenge or the mission to find an ingredient, they still, the Cubans, relish in the beauty of food and entertaining and gathering together. And there's a, a tremendous sense I get from your book and from your prose of appreciation for this love of food and cuisine. We'll pause here for just a moment when we come back more on Cuba, the cookbook. 
By the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because Imogene Tondre is here and we are dishing on Cuba, the cookbook. Uh, live from Havana, uh, <laughs> Imogene is really sharing, I think, a very interesting um, and deep perspective of food and culture in Cuba. And there is a tremendous importance, as you speak about in the book, to preserving some of these traditional Cuban recipes that have been lost over the years. I would think uh, because of, you know, generational growth, but also because of the challenges, as you speak about. Um, Yeah, some of these recipes call for ingredients that are hard to find. Right. Others are, um, you know, dishes that take hours and hours to prepare. And in the last, you know, few decades, since really since the uh, revolution of 1959, women have been incorporated into the workforce, and that shifts everything. That means people don't have time to cook all day because they're working. Um, and, you know, there are, other, there are other recipes that we wanted to include, like borscht and beef stroganoff, because they were very popular at the time, that there was a, a heavy presence from the Soviet Union, which, of course, is not the case today, mm-hmm. but they had their, their moment in history and in the, the kind of general Cuban... Uh, food memory of a, of a certain generation. You eat so many of the things I was surprised to see that are very, I guess, uh, considered, um, you know, American favorites. I, th- there's pizza and gnocchi, and, and you can see the influence from different cultures, but there are, you know, some very great standards. It's not just rice and beans. Some of those recipes, so pizza, for example, has become very common because dating back to the 1970s when Cuba was getting their uh, wheat from the Soviet Union and the rest of the ingredients were easy to come by. And so mm-hmm. the state set up um, a chain of pizza parlors and, oh. and they became very popular. And people make pizzas at home, too. Right. And I would say that the private sector kind of mirrors those, those um the chain of pizza parlors that were that were initially run by the state, and there are, you know, pizza stands all over the place. And it's also just a fast, easy, affordable option if you're on the go and you need to grab a quick bite to eat. Yes, no um, matter where you live. <laughs> of course, who doesn't love pizza? Yeah. Uh, there are some really beautiful recipes that I saw. Uh, great Cuban, you know, like the feel at the heart of it. And I'd like to talk about those dishes because I think making them and talking about them keeps their uh, tradition alive. Um, Of course, the mementos for the book. Uh, But ajiaco, is that how you pronounce the traditional Cuban stew? Yes. So ajiaco is is considered the national dish by many. Um, It was compared to... Um, but uh, Fernando Ortiz, who's this very well-respected anthropologist and historian, um, calls it the national dish because it's as if it, it um, the influences of each ingredient comes from a different ethnicity, mm-hmm. and and the contributions come from the indigenous population, the Spanish influence, and African slaves, and so all of that together kind of represents. The, the ethnic mixture of the Cuban people. Um, of course, as I mentioned earlier, there are other uh, groups of immigrants, but that, those are the kind of the main three. Um, and it's this thick, succulent stew. Uh, there are a couple different recipes in our book because there are different ways to make it. Um, it is um, uh, commonly prepared at the end of June for St. Juan and St. And Pedro uh, festivities. Hmm. Um, 
But it's also, it can be prepared whenever. Sure. Speaking of adoration, Cubans love all things guava. Do they not? Yes, guava is... is um, Popular. It's popular. It was actually mm-hmm. one of my daughter's first words. Ah, I love <laughs> um, it. <laughs> and, you know, I was, uh, just the other day, somebody was asking me about eating in other people's homes. Well, that, that does happen. There are, of course, um, family get-togethers, and, and people do have dinner parties and entertain, but it's not as common as it might be in other places because if there's not an abundance of food, it's hard to invite lots of people over for a big meal. But one thing that I would say I've had in so many people's houses, and especially those times when you just show up unannounced, which is totally normal to do there, um, they either offer you a cafecito, or like a small espresso, um, or um, guava marmalade, which is very, very typical. And you know, I always clarify, it's not like marmalade that you would spread on your toast. It's just called mermelada, so that's how we translate it. But it's kind of like a thick, or I'm sorry, a thinner texture, thin chilled soup um, texture. Like, and Like we would think of a fruit soup, Imogene, here, right? I know, I saw it in a bowl on a page. I It looks so delicious to me. And you top it with cheese? Yes, which is, yes. you know, you say that, it sounds kind of like a, a strange combination at first, but it's delicious because... In, in typical Cuban style, the guavas are cooked with lots of sugar. Mm-hmm. You can, of course, adjust to taste, but the traditional way is to use quite a lot of white sugar, and then you um, blend it and strain it. But then the white cheese or sometimes cream cheese will cut the sweetness, and, and mm. it's an excellent combination. Yeah, it looks so good to me. I couldn't wait to make it. So uh, <laughs> I, I will certainly toast to Cuba and uh, serve it. It looks like a, a lovely warm weather finish to a meal, right? It's like having a cheese course, as the French do, at the end. Uh-huh. Cheese or jam or, or otherwise. Um, before I let you go, could we toast to Cuba with a mojito, please? Because I know that the first mojito is said to have originated in Cuba, and I assume it was to keep cool, I would hope. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty refreshing. <laughs> yes. It, it definitely, I mean, I would, I would say, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, it's the go-to uh, cocktail, right? A mojito or a daiquiri, right? Right. The daiquiri was also created there, and then you can have that on the rocks or blended. Um, and you know, I always say um, white rum is good when it's in a it's served in a in a mixed drink. But dark rum is so smooth that you can just sip it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe just one cube of ice and and a nice dark rum is one of my personal favorites. Um, but yeah, the the mojito is is definitely um, very common. You know, it, it's, tourists love it, but Cubans love it too. So it's not, it's not, um, hmm. it's not just for tourists. It's, it's a, a very traditional drink. And, you know, it's, um, you some... add sparkling water and yes. lime juice and a little bit of sugar. You know, Cubans, again, will add a generous tablespoon of sugar. You can adjust the taste and spearmint. And, and it's delicious and, and very refreshing. I think there's something wonderful about inspiring all of us to master the mojito at home this summer, right? And and we will toast to you. Um, leave us with this. The process of researching and writing this massive encyclopedia had to be quite something for you yeah, and well, for Madeleine. We actually, Madeleine and I met um, working with, um, helping to organize a delegation of chefs from the U.S. who came down to Cuba and worked, gave workshops and had exchanges with Cuban chefs, and that was years ago. That was in 2011. 
And then later I did the, um, my master's at the University of Havana, and at that point Madalena and I had become friends, and she has an excellent culinary library because she's dedicated her life to this. She's published many cookbooks in Cuba and was actually the founder of one of the first vegetarian restaurants and has made the effort, and it is an effort, to get her hands on the best Cuban book book, Cuban, Cuban cookbooks that she possibly could. Hmm. And so we referred to her library, we did interviews, we talked to the elderly who remembered recipes that younger people don't even know about. We um, met with chefs all across the island. We were lucky to go to Baracoa, which is um, this very unique region on the northeastern tip of the island. It's surrounded by mountains, and a, a highway was not built until 1964. So the lack of access, its geographic isolation meant that it developed its very autonomous, self-sufficient food culture, which is different than the rest of the island. I think it is an ultra impressive work and congratulations to you and, uh, of course, to um, Madalena. It really is, I think, an extraordinary, uh, respectful and uh, very amazing tribute to what is Cuban culture and keeping uh, their joyous love of food alive for generations to come. And so kudos to you. Thank you. Thank yes, you so much. of course. Really, and an, an absolutely wonderful read and an Im- incredibly impressive compilation. I stutter because it is a collection of 350 traditional home cooking recipes that documents and celebrates the vibrant cuisine of one of the world's most fascinatingly diverse nations. It is compiled by two of Cuba's leading culinary experts, uncovering traditions and years of gastronomic influence from around the world. And it is a beautiful tribute to Cuban food. It is called Cuba, the cookbook, and it is written by Imogene Tondre and Madalena Vasquez Galvez. It is available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere, and it will inspire you to eat the world, no doubt. Imogene, thank you for sharing your passion. Um, Continued delicious meals to you. Thank you. Thank you. As there is more fabulous food in your radio right after this, you wouldn't dare touch your dial. Now, would you, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio? Be right back. Hungry for great advice? Well, then you're in the right place. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Stomach bloating is so common these days, it's been called an epidemic. With high levels of stress, exposure to pollutants, belly bloat is a hot topic. So what can you do about it? Well, Lisa Lynn to the rescue. Lisa is the founder of Lynn Fit Nutrition and the author of the award-winning The Metabolism Solution. She created the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Metabolic Boosting Weight Loss System. And you've seen her on every show, often with Dr. Oz, to share her workouts and her insight. And I am very proud to call her my longtime friend and to say as the resident fitness expert of this show, she too loves to eat and so she's here to keep us fit. 
she's whipping us back into shape because Lisa Lynn has stopped by. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me, by the way. Well, of course. Thank you for coming back. Um, Okay. Uh, I thought maybe we would play true or false. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Um, Love it. The cause of the problem of belly bloat. If I feel bloated, uh, it might be stress and maybe I should... um, you know, relax a bit, try to uh, sit down, take a nap, uh, get, you know, get more rest. I know that sounds very counterintuitive. You're stressed, you're overdone, keep moving. But I don't mean keep moving in your stress world. I mean keep moving your body and walk because we're just not getting enough activity and we're overeating to the point that even if your body isn't producing fat cells or filling up your fat cells, it get, we get bloated, that puffy, I can't fit in my pants. Like, you know it's not fat, but you also don't feel skinny, you feel yucky. Yes, and I know the yucky feeling. And, yeah, you know, we all do. We all do. And I'll be very forthright on the radio because I uh, live to eat. I work yes, to eat. Uh, yep. You know, I do all of those things to eat. And I find days where... I'm just uncomfortable. Like yeah. um, my jeans leave a mark when I take them off and I yeah, know they're that. not supposed to. Yeah, that, right? Mm-hmm. That's belly yeah. bloat. And I worked with a couple of brides this year who turned me on to this. I don't speak about this enough where sometimes it's a bad meal that maybe, for instance, juices and smoothies are in big time. So I took all the fruit out of her diet and swapped it out with lean proteins, always a protein shake if they're going to get in shape for a wedding because it's the fastest way to get there. Mm -hmm. But I removed all those so-called healthy foods, and she de-bloated and lost like three pounds in one week, which is huge for this, this one girl. She's tiny. Of course. Okay, so this belly bloat, true or false, it's caused by stress, anxiety, uh, not just digestive problems. Very true. Okay. And people don't realize stress affects us mentally, like you want to bite your nails off or jump through the roof or jump down your coworker's throat, but it also bothers us metabolically where it raises our cortisol levels. But cortisol can be very helpful. People don't realize it can actually make you lose weight. However, if it stays up for a long period of time from chronic stress, it can really make you feel bloated, stop. It stops weight loss dead in its tracks. Right. So I'm all about walking. If I, it feels good to me. It gets good. me out there. We walk on the weekends um, mm-hmm. at length. We stop mm-hmm. and mosey some of the time. We power good. walk others. I have a friend who mocks it. Well, you didn't get your heart rate up. And I do think to myself, like you and I discussed, my yep. knees don't hurt. I don't need physical mm-hmm. therapy. And in 20 years, I'll still be walking uh, along the ocean and happily. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe the other thing he is, won't. when you're walking, you're not eating and you're clearing your mind. You're also clearing your body of cortisol and helping. Walking is a powerful tool, especially. I'm going to say this, if you're holding your hoo-ha and meaning you're walking with your core, squeezing your butt, the golf ball in it so your whole body is active, you can tighten and tone your body, and it's actually better if you don't get out of breath because if you go there and you can't hold a conversation, now you're adding to the stress that you just tried to walk away from. Okay, so as you, um, twirl, as you twirl on your stationary bike right. during That's this right. interview, um, mm-hmm. we know that there are specific causes to what is this epidemic called belly bloat mm-hmm. today. We know mm-hmm. stress, anxiety uh, could be what we ate or digestion um, yep. all lend to it. How about dehydration? Oh, absolutely true. 
Okay. And, and so many people don't realize when we're under a stressful condition, we stop drinking water, we stop eating what's good for us. And while you might not even fall off your diet, you will feel yucky the next day because of this chemical toxic bomb that's moving around your body. And the best way to get rid of it is walk it off, number one, because mm-hmm. walking actually improves digestion. Make sure the solution is always going to be dilution, I tell people. Water, 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 everywhere water. Thank you for keeping us healthy and well and My slim pleasure. this summer. Uh, we know that you are continually dedicated to helping us get in the best shape of our lives, physically, mentally, spiritually, and more. It is almost 30 years that Lisa Lynn has devoted her career to personal training, metabolic weight loss, performance, nutrition, and you can get all those great tips on belly bloat and more, toning your arms, improving your posture. Visit lynnfit.com and follow her on social at Lisa Lynn Fitness. Keep cycling, Lisa. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you again. Have a great day, Chow. You too. Bye. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of inspiring conversation, don't you think? I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation for today. I hope you tuned in at the beginning of the show where I talked about great grilled cocktails. Yes, grilling fruit and blending it makes for the ultimate summer drink. And so I thought I'd share my grilled grapefruit Paloma. It's a fired up twist on a traditional Mexican cocktail where you grill grapefruits. You can just cut them in half and char them on the grill just till they have grill marks and they get warm and a little bit smoky. Do a couple limes as well and then squeeze the juice. Then make a traditional Paloma. You can use tequila or even mezcal if you want more of that smoky edge. Even vodka works as well. Mix it with that grilled grapefruit and lime juice. Maybe a little simple syrup if you need. I pour it over ice and top it with club soda. And it is the most fabulous summer refresher. I will post my grilled grapefruit Paloma cocktail recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram now. Become a fan or a friend, or both, please, at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I'll meet you here next weekend where there's lots more delicious conversation in your radio. I thank you for listening. I hope that I satiated your appetite and fed your soul. And I'll see you real soon. Until next time, I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.